Thanks, guys. If this is your first week with us, hey, um, this is the fourth week of a four-week series on worship. Um, not the general concept, um, but the specifics of, like, why do we get together and do this thing we do on Sunday morning? And last week, the, the sermon, one of the things I talked about, actually there were two sermons last week, and one of them was on remembering and how we are so naturally, spiritually forgetful creatures. And one of the things that occurred to me this week was that as soon as I f- finished this series, what was going to happen? <laughs> we were all going to forget it, yeah. So, um, I can't change human nature, but we can create a sticker. Um, that you can, if you're too cool to stick it in your Bible or something, then you can just use it as a bookmark or something. But we try to summarize the main idea of each of the three weeks before this week and this week um, of what we talked about. And that is that um, the first week, that worship is the most important repetition in your life. There are some things that you just do over and over again because you have to and because that's what you do. You do the laundry every week or if you're a college student, every seven weeks, um, or there's, you know, you eat every day. There are certain repetitions that, that we do that we actually like, like eating. I, I just don't get tired of that. Um, but there are other repetitions that we don't always think of as, as incredibly important as they are. In worship, because we're forgetful, because we're people who forget the gospel, forget who we are, forget who God is, repetition's really important. The, the second week, we talked about that worship builds the church, that God— God's plan for his own glorification, for our transformation, for the good of the world, is to build up this thing called the church, which is a group of people transformed by Jesus, who come and meet in this container every week to be built up to be that thing that he's called us to be. And that one of the, one of the central biblical reasons we do this isn't just to tell God he's fantastic, because here's a newsflash, God already knows he's fantastic. Um, he deserves to be worshipped, but w- worship is itself supposed to be something that's enjoyable and transformational. And he calls us to do it together because Scripture says in a number of places, we each have different things that we all, individu- we all need from each other. And by bringing us together as a church, he brings together what we need to be built up so that we need each other other in that way. Last week I talked about how worship has to be focused on remembering, expressing, and celebrating because we are naturally forgetful creatures. We are naturally under-expressive creatures. And part of the reason we're under-expressive creatures is because we tend to express ourselves when cool events happen. But the things most deserving of our expression of enjoyment are things that are constants. And those are the things that we most naturally forget. And God is always the same. And even though he's the most valuable being in the universe, because he's always the same day in and day out, that our tendency to just sort of forget about him is pretty high. And part of the problem with our hearts in relationship to celebration is we key in on the stuff that happens periodically, like our team wins a playoff game and woo, we're ready to celebrate. But the same thing that happens in and out, in, day in and day out, is the thing we're most prone to forget, even though it may be the most needful thing for us to celebrate. And then today, I want to talk about how worship keeps us on mission. That is, that when we focus on God, that focuses everything else. That the hour that we spend in here together actually defines who and what we are for all the other hours of our life. It keeps us on mission. Let me, um, 
One of the reasons why I keep coming back to this, and I feel like we need to come and review. In fact, I was talking with Lisa. I was like, Lisa, we should do one of these stickers for like the last five series. We just need to review. We need to review. And um, one of the reasons is I, I think that is when I was a kid, I would go to my mom's classroom after school. And in her classroom with her sixth graders, she had this poster on the wall that said this, that knowledge is power. It is. But only if you can remember it. And Larry Osborne has this scale of knowing where you like hear something about it the first time and then you're familiar with it and then it bores you and then you actually know it. And knowledge is not, if I some, say something, you go, oh yeah, I know that. That's not knowledge. It's kind of like, have you, did you see that show where they would have people sing along with a song that was playing and then the song cuts out and they have to sing like the next 19 words? Did you ever see that show? And one of the things that it like showed was that for the vast majority of people, you can sing along with a song while it's playing, but the minute it cuts off, you actually can't sing it because you don't actually know that song. As long as it's playing, you know it. The minute it stops playing, you don't. And that's what humans are like. That's why, that's why if you feel like saying to your parents sometime, like, Ugh, you're boring me with this lecture. That means you're one step from actual knowledge. If you would just keep listening to your parent lecture you, you will soon actually know the thing that they're saying enough that you can actually call it up in your life when you really need it. Because knowledge is not what you think you know when I tell you. And you go, oh yeah, I know that. Knowledge is when something happens to you, the reaction inside of you is to bring up something you actually know and can call up yourself so that it can help you and direct you and define you in that moment. Which means you should be constantly and ritually bored in the learning process. Some of you are experiencing that right now. And if that happens, if we worship in that way, we'll, what we end up realizing is that worship and how it builds us and changes us isn't just an acquisition of information, but there's a deeper transformation that has to happen for us to really change. And that is, there needs to be an emotional inspiration of our hearts. There needs to be a strengthening of our will. There needs to be a clarification of our mind, a creativity in our imagination, and a sharpness in our memory. And when all those things come together, it has a really profound impact on us. And that's why church can't just be a talk. That's why even my sermons can't just be informational, right? I have to annoy you. I have to preach at you. I have to meddle. Like, if you think that I'm getting a little too personal, a little too, like, in your business, that's what preaching is, because preaching isn't informational mainly. It is taking a truth and pressing it in. And that's why we sing worship songs. Why do we have a sing-along at the beginning of worship services? Because, because we need more than just information. All of these things are supposed to happen. Does that make sense? This means yes, this means no. So it's important to recognize then for what all the other stuff that we do and all, the, all the, the things about God behind this is our whole life needs to be kept on mission. And worship does that if we remember, express, celebrate, and I'm making an assumption, too, when I say this, that the kind of worship I'm referring to is not anything somebody creates and calls worship. What I'm talking about is something that meets the criteria of the last three weeks, and it is God-centered, it's, it's biblically trustworthy, and it's gospel and Jesus-focused. That kind of worship has the ability to focus our lives. Okay? So let me ask you this question. Um, is there a thing that happens in your week that reminds you of why you do what you do the rest of the week? Right? Is there like something that happens most weeks and you're like, this is why I do what I do. So it could be like kids' bedtime, which I only do once a week. I'm just kidding. <laughs> 
Sorry, that's not funny. Um, you know, putting your kids to bed. And you're like, you know, you're sitting there, you're reading a story. The day is finally quieting down. The two-month-old is fi- has finally shut up and passed into unconsciousness. And you can actually read a story to your child, um, hopefully one that you've picked out, which is how it works when I do story time. And I'm just kidding, that's not true. And you're like, this is, this is why I went to work. This is why I do what I do. This is why this moment, right? Or it might be um, leisure. The, the, what's, the, what's the game where they hit the little white ball? Golf, right? Yes. But some people like that game, apparently. And, you know, they go, you know, this is what it's all about. They get out there and they're like, you know, whenever, if you find yourself saying, this is what it's all about, that's your moment, right? Or the middle one, a married couple's date nights, Right? For some people, that's it. Or like being out with your friends. Or like we have movie night every Friday night. We go. I go to Little Caesars. I get the five dollar pizza. I come home. We pull the carpet back. You know the space carpet back, and we watch some Netflix movie we've watched like seventy four times that the kids for some reason still like. And we eat that pizza, and I fall asleep, and they enjoy themselves. And it's like this family moment where we're like, this is this is what we're this is a family moment, right? And um. But, you know, when I thought of that illustration, my answer wasn't church. But that's the right answer. I mean, that's—that is really what helps me remember and realize what I— what I do every minute of my whole week. Why, why do I care to be a family man? Why does leisure matter? Why would I take my wife on a date? What— why do I read to my kids and try to nurture them more than is probably even helpful? What— well, part of the reason is because of who I'm called to be and what my roles are and what I've been created to be and all of that kind of thing. It's, it's all really flows out of the gospel. It flows out of who Jesus is and who he's made me to be and all that. That's the answer. And so I want to look um, as briefly as I can at three things related to how worship keeps us on mission. Okay, the first is that worship keeps God at the center. Now, that may sound like kind of a no-duh proposition. You might think like, well, yeah, I sort of realized already that Christianity was sort of this believe in God sort of thing. And, all right, sweet. But, um, and, and that is true. One of the things I talked about in the first sermon is, is God is the most intrinsically valuable being in the universe. He is and therefore, he is rightly the center of all of our value, and therefore, rightly the center of all of our virtue. And the idea that we would love and worship God, that makes perfect sense within Christian doctrine. But one of the things we need to recognize is that because of that, God, we are meant to take our lives as defi- de- defined and motivated from who God actually is, as opposed to fear or going on a guilt trip, or doing things. I mean, why, why would we say the Christian vision of what life looks like is worthwhile, and we would be sufficiently motivated to seek to be that thing? I mean, wh- why, would we, why would we tell our kids, you know, should we say, well, if you don't lie, you know, people will trust you, and then you can get things from them, you know? Or, you know, if you work hard, then somebody will give you a job, and then you won't starve. Or if you, you know, you should be nice— we're all supposed to be nice, so you should be nice. And that wasn't very nice, right? Or we could use religious ones that aren't really very gospel-centered, like, you know, if you keep doing that, you're probably going to go to hell. Or, um, you know, you should feel terrible for doing that, even though you should feel terrible for doing that. But is that really the motivation to stop doing that, right? 
Even if the right, the right feeling after you did something that you should feel terrible about is feeling terrible, does that mean that that feeling of terrible is the reason why you shouldn't do it in the future? No, that's self-atonement, right? That's, I don't want to have a bad feeling, therefore I should be good. Well, that's a terrible motivation to be good, right? Even if you should feel terrible. Look, for example, at this passage. There's a number of biblical passages that are like this. But one of the things we have to realize is, is that who God actually is and who Christ is, and therefore who we are if we believe in and belong to Jesus, fundamentally transforms our identity. And when that happens, living the Christian life makes perfect sense. And until that happens, it never makes any sense. There is an identity relationship between the two. And so you see, when our identity is centered in Christ, the Christian life makes perfect sense. When it's not, it doesn't. One example, here's an example of this before we read the passage. Have you ever had a period in your life, as a Christian, if you are one, where you weren't really sure if God really existed? Like, you're a Christian, you're in, but you're just, you're in a faith funk. You're not really sure God exists, for for whatever reason. Do you find yourself more tempted to do sins of various kinds? I do. Totally. Totally. The rootedness of my real confidence that Christ exists and I belong to him has a direct relationship to the strength of my motivation to live according to the Christian vision of life. Why? Because my motivation comes from my identity and therefore from Christ's actual existence. If I doubt that, my motivation is sapped. Look at, look at this passage, for example. It's about partway through a five-page letter the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in Colossae. He says, Since then, you've been raised with Christ, meaning you've believed in Jesus, and just like Christ rose from the dead, you've been, um, you've believed in him, and so you've been baptized. You, you died under the water to sin, and you were raised to new life by believing in Jesus. So you and Jesus are connected in that way. Since you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So you see, your mot- that's the motivation. What's your motivation? For letting go your, some of your visceral desires and your desires to, to seek your own self-organized happiness from whatever you can pull into your life. What's the motivation for that? He's like, here's why. You're dead. You don't, you're not alive in that world anymore. You're, you're dead to that. You're alive with Christ and what, what belongs to you and what you belong to is seated up there with Jesus. It's connected to Jesus, you see? He says, for you died and your life is not hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, now look at that next phrase, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, why is therefore there? What's it there for? Remember that from Bible study class? Right? Because these two are connected. Immediately out of this idea that we belong to Jesus, and this is what it means to set your hearts and your minds on things about. He says, therefore, now how would you live if you actually believed that? Therefore, then, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. What's idolatry? It's an identity confusion, right? It's believing something else besides God is God. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all such things. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other. Why? Since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge 
being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Do you see how the passage starts and ends with identity? And in the middle it says, if this is who you are, this is who you must be. Do you see the relationship? Now, if we are constantly forgetting that, what then is the most mission-appropriate thing we could possibly do? A repetitive action of focusing on and remembering that identity that is focused on that God, which is this here. Does that make sense? Worship focuses us on mission. The problem that we end up facing is that all of us end up on what you might just call mission creep. Um, or I- idolatry creep is actually the better, the word that's actually in my notes and therefore the better one. Um, we all end up on idolatry creep, and that is when secondary things, things that aren't, aren't God, that are, are good things, come in and they begin to take the place of God, and we're all creeping back to be that person. To the extent to which our sinful nature isn't being put to death, we're always moving back to other idols we think are going to make us happy. And when that happens, um, it's not obvious because it's, we aren't doing sins. You see, most of us, the way we have learned to be religious is through moralism. That is, there, there are good actions and bad actions, and if you do good actions, God loves you. If you do bad actions, God dislikes you and may punish you. But that's actually not the way this works. That's partly true, just true, true enough to confuse us, really. What's, what's actually true is God is God, and anything that isn't God isn't God. It's a false God. And our identity is bound up either in that we serve the true God or we don't. We serve something else. And if we try to create our own salvation, oftentimes we will go and find something that's just going to get us what we want. And so our hearts are constantly creeping towards idolatry. And the reason why that's so hard for us to see is because our idols are usually very good things. They're oftentimes things God has actually given us. And when our idols are things that God has actually given us, it doesn't look bad to worship them, and we actually don't even know we're worshiping them until they either get ripped away from us or there is a conflict between what God is telling us to do and how we want to use that thing. And if we recognize this, you go all through Scripture, and Scripture is, is at least as interested in idolatry as it is in sin. And even in the Old Testament where God talks about sins, if you look at how he talks about sins, it's always to point out that when we commit sins, it's not so much the sin we are committing, but the idolatry it's pointing to. If you sin, what's the big problem? That you sinned? Well, that is a big problem. It is rebellion against God, and yes. But the bigger problem is it means you forgot who you are. The minute you sin, all that is is conclusive evidence that on some level you've forgotten who you are. Your mind and your heart is not seated with Christ in God in above the earthly things that are connected to our sinful nature. It's now our, our mind and our heart are connected to our sinful nature that are rooted in earthly things, and therefore we worship them. You see, it's an identity problem. And we all go through this creep, and the thing that's really scary about it is you can do that right in church. Some of these idols are right in here. And you can come to church, and you can love God, and you can be a good Christian, whatever on earth that means to you. And yet, you can have faith-killing idolatry because there are idols right in this building that are more important to you than simply focusing on God and letting that guide us wherever it should guide us. 
to the extent to which, for example, some, some people, they go to church, and it really, it's their circle of friends. It's the circle of friends that they found here. That is their God. Because if some of those friends went to a different church, they would just go too. Didn't matter, doesn't matter what the other church does. Right? Or if some of their friends moved away, they might not go to church. Or for, for some people, and I know this is kind of a weird one, but for some people, it can even be the Bible. And it's not how much you study the Bible that can make the Bible an idol. There's no, there's no really relation to how much you— You can study a ton or very little, it'll still, still be an idol. But there's a place—remember there's a place where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, these religious hypocrites, and he goes, you know, you guys, you study, that, you study that Bible, and 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 you think that by studying that Bible you have life. And he says, the whole thing points to me. I'm the, I'm the source of life. And it's very easy—in fact, if you hate doing a quiet time, you, the, you've probably fallen into that. If you used to read the Bible every day and pray um, to try to draw us closer to God, and it turned into this habit that you really hated doing, it's a really good evidence that at some point you started either um, justifying yourself before God by how faithful you read and study the Bible, or the Bible itself became an idol to you. It didn't have the life it was meant to have because you weren't studying it for Jesus' sake, and the Bible became dry, but you still feel like you should do it, and the whole thing sucks. Stinks. Sorry. It's, it's very important to recognize there are idols inside the church that, and that are fabulous and good things. And if we don't remember who we are, if we are not centered back on mission through worship, we are going to start—and that, listen, friends, that's how churches die. That is how churches become ineffective. That's why congregations fight with each other. That's how churches die. Or that's how churches just flounder. And are ineffective and don't go anywhere and don't really do anything and people don't really grow. But they have nice times together and they have good inspirational talks that are 25 to 55 minutes. And I don't want that for us and I don't think, I don't think you do either. Right? The second way that we need to talk about is that worship makes us simultaneously missional and transformational. Now, if you don't know this already, missional is the new cool word for outreach and evangelism. And transformational is the new cooler word for discipleship. Okay? And um, there is a sometimes a false decision that people end up making between whether or not to be a church for people who don't know Jesus already, people who are visitors or guests or who are checking out Christianity, or whether to be a serious church that really studies the Bible and really preaches the word and so on. And that, I believe— I really believe down to the core of who I am as a pastor, and I think, I hope that means also as a Christian, is I just don't think that's true. I think that's a false choice. Um, I think, I think that's, that's, that's arguing you need a different car because you want a different color. Um, what everybody needs, if we believe that God, that God himself orders and focuses the mission of our whole life— then what we would recognize pretty early on is that Christians and non-Christians, at least on this level, actually need exactly the same thing when they come in here on a Sunday morning. What everybody needs is for their vision of God to be renewed and enlarged. Everybody needs that. You, if you've been a Christian for 40 years, you, then you probably know as well as anybody, if you've been studying God and trusting Him and following Him for 40 years, that your view of God is too small and too dull because we're forgetful creatures. And what you need every week is to come in here recognizing that you need a renewed and enlarged vision of God. 
to transfix your mind, to enlarge your heart, and to drive your emotions toward him and towards the life he's called us to and the identity he's called us to. And if you don't believe in Jesus, what the gospel argues is you need the exact same thing. You just need your view of God to be dramatically enlarged and renewed. That's all. And you see, once you realize that, you don't have to choose anymore between what kind of church. Are we going to be a seeker church or are we going to be a discipleship word church? Everybody needs the same thing. We need the same thing. And um, I don't know if you know this, but, you know, people often think that visitors, they wouldn't like long sermons, but Christians who, you know, who really love Jesus, they like long sermons. It's actually the opposite. Just about, it's the Christians that, that moan about long sermons, and it's the seekers who don't. There are, in fact, some of the fastest growing churches among younger people in their 20s and 30s that focus on people who don't know Jesus in cities where church attendance is terrible. Almost all of them have sermons longer than 45 minutes. A number of the fastest growing ones sermons every week over an hour. Why? Because here's a surprise. People who aren't Christians are serious people. They're not vacuous. And if they come to church, they want to hear something of some substance, and they actually want to hear the long-form argument, not the short little pithy argument that they hear on some news channel when nobody takes long enough to actually talk about an issue. That bothers them as much as it bothers us. And they come in here and they want something that has some meat and some guts to it. And so the idea that people who are coming into faith or who are seeking faith, that, that they want something that's kind of soupy, I don't think is true. And I think that as, as believers, I think that we should be after something really substantive as well. The difference is, is the only, the real difference is, are we encoding it or not? That's the difference. The difference is, when we talk to people, do we talk in Christian code so that people who've been coming to church can understand it and nobody else can? Or do we uncode what we're talking about so everybody can understand it basically equally? That's the difference. That's why I try to talk in really secular language about spiritual things. So that somebody can come in who's never been to church before and can listen to what I say and maybe misunderstand 20% of it because I didn't translate it right. But they can go, I think I know what he was saying. And now I can actually think about that. And every Christian understands it just as well. Because I refuse to choose on a false choice. And I think that's true of our worship too. I think that, and I think that's because we all need the same thing. We all need our visions of God enlarged and renewed. I mean, think about it. A seed and a plant need the exact same things. A seed, in order to sprout and grow, needs sun, moisture, heat. And a plant, to keep growing, needs sun, moisture, heat. Life requires the same things. And I think that's true spiritually as well. And I think that'll keep us from making a silly distinction in terms of whether we're going to be just missional or just transformational or whether we're going to be really Bible people or not. I think every church should try to be as welcoming to guests as possible. And I think every church should be serious in their content. Why treat people like they're vacuous little folks who can't think? Third, worship helps frame and make decisions for us. The more God-centered we are, the more we're able to make decisions that fit with God's character and actions, that fit with God's gospel and God's kingdom. Um, 
Let me give you an example of this in our church's life. In fact, one of the reasons we did this whole series is for this minute, this, time, this right here, what I'm going to talk about right now. And that is several months ago, actually last March, I think it was. And so we had the conversation before this. Last March, we went to two services. And when we went to two services, we had a conversation about whether or not we'd go to two styles. And we had town hall meetings and congregational meetings talked about this. And um, I and some others made an argument that we really should go to two styles. That there are some people that are just naturally going to connect with slightly different things artistically, and we just ought to do that. And it was obviously more complicated than that. But we actually agreed on that and said, okay, yeah, let's do it. Let's go to two services and let's do two styles. Now, you may have noticed we, the styles aren't real radically different. And that's partly because um, we had the same band lead both services because it's much easier to do that. But what we realized is we weren't really doing two styles. And so recently, over the last couple of months, we've been splitting the groups into different band families so that we have truly different bands with people who have really different ideas about what to do stylistically so that we can say to them, okay, now go up and do what's in your heart to do and order them what Sundays they do, what services, so that we really have this stylistic difference. Now, do you know what it's normally called when churches do that? When they go to multiple styles within a church? They call that a worship war. That's what they call it. In liturgy. It's been called that for 25 years, at least. That, that's called a worship war. Because, and here's why. Because usually one style's leadership feels condescending and the other style's leadership feels threatened. And they fight each other and resent each other. And one of them feels like they're on the way out, and that really bothers them because they pay two-thirds of the bill. And the other one thinks that they're, they're the next thing, and they know everything, and they really rock. And before you know it, people come to a meeting, and they agree to do something. Yeah, we'll do that. That's the right thing to do. But they can't deliver on the right thing to do without hating each other. And— um, for 30 years, there have been churches that have been split. I mean, I mean I'm talking to the point of like having to hire a police officer to come to congregational meetings or on Sunday morning to make sure a fight doesn't break out. People who just hate each other's guts because their worship style is changing or something like that. And that's— Listen, that's what I mean when I, when I said that there are idols inside the church. You know— the, the head of our idols, you know, it breaks off slowly. And it's very, very easy to, um, to decide to do some kind of change to fulfill the mission God has called us to. And for it really to just end up to turn into a terrible fight. And what started out as an idea to try to, to serve God more faithfully ends up being a way in which none of us serve God at all. Um, and so what we've tried to do over the last— four weeks is we've gotten um, our worship teams together, and we've had dinner together and talked with each other, and I've been presenting stuff on a theology of worship, because my goal is that um, if, we ha- if we have a shared theology, a belief in what, who God is, a shared anthropology, a belief in what human beings really are, a shared psychology, a, be- a shared belief in what really goes on inside of us, and therefore what we really need— and we truly share those things and agree on them. And then we realize there, there are people who have different sociologies, how they interact in other people and in styles and in cultures and in art and so on. And we realize that they're, they're the same in these three categories, but they're different in this one. And so there's a functionality of different styles that comes from a very, very similar place. If, if you built multiple styles on one theology, you really could have unity. And you really could have mutual enrichment. Let me, let me give you a quick example of that. So, 
should churches play rock-style music, right? Everybody who says yes, I'm just kidding. Um, you know, should we play, like, should the bass be really loud, and should we, like, tell the drummer he can do whatever he wants, and should we, like, whatever. Um, now, there's, there's two different sides of this. There's some people who are like, no, you shouldn't. That's the devil's music, and we're all going to go to hell. And then there's other people who think that you don't, you really don't love Jesus unless, you know, you've got a full sleeve tattoo. And so, you know, what's, what do you do with that? And so there's a couple things that you, that you can do with that. The one is you can just assume that the people that disagree with you are, are big, dumb animals. That's the one thing you can do. So let's just, let's just picture somebody who, who likes sort of loud rock music stuff, and there's some other person, and the, let's just—and they, they're like, well, why don't you like that music? And so they're thinking in their head that they know the answer, right? And the answer is because they're old. That's the answer, right? And everybody knows when you get old, you get angry, right? And you get, like, crusty, and you can't— move around a little, and you just, you're frustrated with the young, the young people are idiots, and they just get dumber every year, and why do we even let them drive? And that's just what it, what happens. And so that's why you don't like, you know, the good music. And, and, and what are the, what is that person, let's pretend that person is an older person. Um, what is that person thinking? Um, you, all you're doing is taking what the world does for very sinful reasons, and you're just baptizing it. You just like it. You're not thinking through, is this honor God? How do we use it to honor God? What does God want? What kind of, you know, if God was, you're not thinking, you're just, you're just taking what you like. You're taking what other people think is cool. You're, you're taking music that is mostly designed for sensual and like very not God-honoring purposes. You just want to pull it in the church and put some Jesus lyrics on it. Most of them are for, they sound like prom songs that you could slow dance to, and you call that worship, and that's really, really dumb. Now, that would be the uncharitable way to interpret both sides, right? If you actually asked the other person what they thought, they would probably say something like this, okay? So the side that does not like really rockish sort of type music would say something like this. They might not be able to articulate this, but this is what they feel. Intemperance, that is, a violence of emotion that is not that does not move out of convictions of thought and will is actually extremely unhealthy for people. Because what happens are the emotional faculties that are supposed to give motivation to our mind and our will end up pulling it along behind. So instead of it being the, a force that pushes behind and allows us to to actually do what we really believe is right and true and beautiful, and so our emotions fulfill and, and, and press in on that, what it does is it allows our emotions to whatever they spontaneously react to viscerally to drag our whole life in that direction. Intemperance destroys people, right? I mean, there's that Edmund Burke quote that intemperate men cannot be free. Their passions bind their fetters. And so if you use exclusively an artistic form that causes people to be more visceral and more emotive without relating it specifically to their will and their mind, they're not going to respond emotionally right to things, and they're not going to have the, the strength of character and the temperance of character to actually deliver on what they're convinced in their convictions is right, true, good, and beautiful. And you'll have people whose lives are going all over the place, and that generation is already like that, and all you're doing is feeding into it rather than pulling in the other direction. It's foolishness. It's not the wise thing to do. Now, is that right? Is that argument right? I don't know. I think it is, actually. I'm not sure if it's right, but it's rational. And if somebody held that conviction, I would sure want to listen to them, right? 
Because I might, I might think if I was on the other side and I wanted to play the whatever music, I might think, you know, if they're right, that at least ought to change what songs I select and what content they focus on. I can't just pick prom songs for Jesus. I need to make sure we're singing about all of God's attributes. I need to make sure we're singing about suffering as much as we're, we're, we're singing about how lovely Jesus is. I need to, I, we need to talk about God's fathership and his providence as well as the saving work on the cross and the coming of a spirit and how that leads us in. I need to make sure I have a fuller theology. Otherwise, I'm going to fulfill the prophecy these people are making, right? Now, if these people listen to these people, what would these people say? Well, they'd probably say something like this. Okay, I, I, I get that, but we have to create whole people. One of the things that we find in other cultures is, is that the evocation of emotion isn't connected strongly enough to will and thought. And so what that produces is people who think thoughts, but they don't feel passionately about them. They're not motivated about them. They're not really, they're not willing to sacrifice for them. And what actually, what people think and how, and what, and what their will is focused on needs the the effluence of emotion, we need to connect these things together. So we need to take true things about God and what those implications would be for our life, and we need to connect them to the most emotional thing possible. We want people to feel deeply, and if I can use a a method or style in which they more naturally feel deeply when connecting it to the right content, I'm actually creating a more whole human being, not a more broken human being. And I think we should do that. Now, is that argument right? I don't know. I think it sort of is. And I think it's worth hearing. And I think if those two groups talked to each other, they would really enrich each other because each group would change what they're doing and how they're thinking based on the other. And if you came to the different services, you'd be like, I'm not sure I would have made that choice, but I know why that person did. And I know it's based on our shared theology of who God is, what a human is, what's naturally happening inside of us, and what we deeply need. And then stylistically, they've made that choice because of the sociology of the people they're actually trying to reach. Because we're being missionaries. We're trying to meet people where they are with that which is ultimately true in the gospel. And you see, the problem with churches that have worship wars is they have two styles and no theology. To to be the sort of people that are angry at whatever other style people want to do. And, and the, the frustrating thing about this is it usually comes out of the student or the youth ministry. And to be the group of people that instead of engaging with those people and trying to help clear up some of the excesses, but then also give them space to move, to, to fight rather than fund the next thing is really not— I don't think it's as God-centered as we need to be. And, and yet to come out of one of those ministries would be like, oh, here's how we need to do church, and here's what we need to focus on, and not listen to what's going on, and just kind of steamroll forward and do whatever the heck we want, and not have a shared theology. That's not theological either. That's not God-honoring either. And you don't have worship. What you end up having is idols. And the idols destroy the vitality of what we're trying to accomplish together. And it makes it impossible to have a multi-generational church or people who are at all different from each other worshiping together. And that diminishes the reputation of God, the one who has made all people in one body together. And it's—see, it's, and it's not just our worship styles— for which we need to come together and worship and be refocused in our mission to make decisions. Friends, we're going to make a lot of hard decisions together. And they're going to be hard because our in-church idols are always going to say, oh, let's make it a little easier for us. But the mission of God is always going to drive us onward, and we're going to have to be like, no, we really should do this. And those decisions are going to be really hard. And if we don't keep coming back here and, and focusing on God— 
what he's done in the gospel, who Christ is, who we are because of that, if our minds aren't set on things of God, and if we're not putting to death the sinful nature, if those things aren't happening, we do not have a prayer of being on mission in the rest of our lives, either in our corporate life as a local church or in our personal lives in anything we do. Because worship, worship sets us on mission. If you focus on God, that helps us focus on everything else. Let's pray. Father, um, we just, we really want to be a church of people that embrace all these good things in our lives, but are so drawn back to you again and again that they don't become idols. We want to be people that are, that through what you call us to do together as worship, are renewed again and again and and enlarged in our vision of you. We want our vision to be renewed and enlarged. We want to remember what we forget all week. We want to celebrate who you are every day in a constant way that we're so easily prone to overlook. We want to express it in such a way that creates enough self-humiliation that there's actually humility. We want to build up the church because we know that that's your plan for your self-glorification and it's for the good of all people and for our real transformation. And we want to do it first and foremost because you are intrinsically worth it. God, please help us to experience and enjoy what it means to be re-centered and refocused on you each week. Help that to happen here in what we do and help it to put us on mission both in our life together as a community of Jesus followers and also individually in every action and decision of our life. In Jesus' name, amen.